Welcome to a special sports edition of High Tuke Talks, the official podcast of the AWAF West. My name is Armin Trikian, and I'm joined by Haruk Bird. Yo, yo, yo. And Aram Masar Ejan. What's going on? We dive into a variety of topics that are intertwined with the Armenian community, from the top players and coaches to front office executives who proudly represent our culture in the sports industry. Back in November, we interviewed Rex Glamian, an assistant coach for the Sacramento Kings with three decades of experience coaching in the NBA. From ELAC and Cal Poly Pomona to coaching in the NBA Finals, Rex discusses his journey as a lone Armenian working in the NBA. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. All right, Rex, you know, welcome to the show. First, I want to talk to you about, we have very similar backgrounds, you and me. So you went to ELAC, I went to ELAC, you graduated from Cal Poly, I currently go to Cal Poly. So I'm wondering, when are the Clippers going to call me for an assistant job, you know, since, since we share so much? You know, how, how do you, because I live in Montebello. Montebello, you probably know, is 10 minutes away from ELAC. How do you go from those two schools to, you know, coaching uh, under Bill Fitch? Wow, it seems like quite a jump, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, I actually uh, was very fortunate to be able to, at a young age, break into the NBA and, and not only get in, but like stick uh, for as many years as I've been able to. It's been um, 20, this will be 27, I believe, 27 years now, so really fortunate to be in this position, uh, especially coming from, uh, you know, not such a hotbed of NBA talent, obviously in East Los Angeles where I kind of grew up. So, um, really fortunate. I've worked hard and sacrificed a lot along the way. Um, and it's good to know that we have the same roots, uh, in terms of, of where we're from and school and all that stuff. Uh, East Los Angeles College, which I went to for a couple of years, uh, provided me with a, a great platform uh, for two years to just be able to kind of gather myself a little bit. I played there for two years and then transferring to Cal Poly Pomona and graduating from there with a, a business degree. It, it really started to um, take shape for me uh, just with the education that I was getting and then the ability to go back to East Los Angeles College and become a uh a graduate assistant at the time um, and learn a little bit about the college game. Uh, I had played two years of it, so I, I knew it, but then learn it from a coaching aspect. And then I was fortunate enough to break into the NBA at a, a very young age with a Hall of Fame coach like Bill Fitch and uh, just learn and, 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 you know, kind of stick for a long time. Did you have a plan to go to ELAC or start coaching right away after Cal Poly? I didn't really have a plan because I was just kind of trying to figure it all out. Um, but I was at Cal Poly Pomona and I was also coaching. I was going to school at Cal Poly, but coaching at East Los Angeles College as um, one of the grad assistants and um, learning, you know, and coaching. I had been one year removed from playing there. So um, it, it was good for me. And then I think after two years of being a, a assistant coach at East Los Angeles College, I uh, applied for an internship with the uh, Los Angeles Clippers, and um, I got that job. And, and then from there, uh, a year or two later, they hired me full-time. 
And uh, that was 20, gosh, that was uh, in the early 90s. Oh, wow. I'll make sure to put all that in my resume when I send it <laughs> <Yeah>. to the <laughs> From college hoops to coaching in the All-Star Game in the NBA Finals, and now returning to Sacramento, hoping to help them return to the playoffs for the first time since 2006, the longest current playoff drought in the NBA. What has this experience been like for you? Really, really cool. I mean, uh, going back to Los Angeles to be able to coach an all-star game, uh, Coach Dwayne Casey was the head coach. We had the best record uh, in the East, so we were allowed the opportunity uh, to coach the all-star all-star game. And for those who don't know, the team with the best record at the all-star break, um, East and West, that coaching staff gets to go coach the, the all-star game. So we really wanted to do it. Uh, we were living in Toronto, obviously working there and we wanted to get back to LA and coach the all-star game. We thought it would be really fun, uh, myself and my family. And then obviously the coaching staff, we all wanted to go out there and do it and get some sunshine for a, a weekend and be in LA. And it, it was just like a, one, it was one of the highlights of my career being able to do that and um, come back home and see family and friends and be involved in an all-star game like that. And it was such a great game also um, with so many so many good things that happened uh, in that game and that weekend. It's, it'll be a, a memory that I, I carry with me for the rest of my life for sure. Can you share with us what that experience was like, maybe a memorable moment from that weekend? Well, um you know, for me, just being able to, I, I coached in Oklahoma City um, for six years. And the cornerstone of our organization was Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, James Harden. And then I moved on to Toronto. And the cornerstone of that team was Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan. And to have all five guys in that game uh, for me was really, really fun. And then specifically to have Kevin and Russell on our team um, that we were coaching was, was really a highlight. I had been two years removed or three from coaching them. And then just to be back with them again, um, it brought back a lot of great memories. And we were going up against LeBron's team and, and um, uh, James Harden. And that was a, a really fun game. And it came down to the last, I don't know, last couple shots in the game. So, uh, for me, that was that was a, lo a lot of fun, and it brought back a lot of memories because of the people that were involved in the game. <clears throat> Absolutely. And can you kind of talk about your relationship with, or doesn't even have to be specifically those players, but with superstar players and being able to coach in the All-Star game with so many future Hall of Famers and players who've had, you know, truly magnificent careers? Yeah, you know, I've really been fortunate to, be with a lot of great players, Hall of Fame players. Um, wow, it's it's probably, I mean, over the years, you know, Carmelo Anthony early in Denver when I was there and Kevin Garnett, Hall of Fame player in Minnesota, um, you know, in, in, in obviously in Oklahoma City, Kevin Russell, James will all be in the Hall of Fame, uh, DeMar DeRozan and, and um, uh, Kyle Lowry are, are probably Hall of Fame players at the end of the day. Um, and then obviously with the Clippers coaching Kawhi Leonard and Paul George um, was, was a highlight. Uh, but, you know, there's so many other players that I've been able to connect with, uh, not just those guys. Those, they're great players, and I have a great relationship with those guys. But, you know, the, the other guys that um, 
you know, throughout the years that I've been able to impact, you know, Serge Ibaka, um, was, is, is still a great friend of mine and, and a guy that I've spent a lot of time with. Um, and in Toronto, there were guys like Fred Van Vliet and Delon Wright, OG Ananubi, um, you know, guys that I connected with and, you know, there's 15 to 17 players on, on a team. And sometimes you connect with guys very quickly, uh, and it's, it's seamless and sometimes you don't. And, you know, as a coach, you know, you got to be able to try to impact everybody. Um, but there are certain players that are special. Nick Collison, uh, in Oklahoma City was a special player. And I think his number retired, correct? Yes. Yes. In Oklahoma City, I take pride in some of these guys that I coached. I'm still, uh, talking to, you know, 20 years later, Brent Berry, uh, who was with the Clippers, won the slam dunk contest years ago. Uh, Scott Brooks, who I coached with the Clippers is now, uh, one of my best friends and I've worked for him. Uh, believe it or not, for six years with the, with the Clippers, and he's now head coach of Washington. So not only do I uh, try to uh, create relationships and, and um, friendships uh, with the players, but like after, you know, after their careers, I like to, you know, kind of take a little responsibility for some of those guys and, and try to help them out along the way too. Because I tell players all the time, like, the NBA is very, very difficult. You know, not only is it difficult to get into uh, for coaches and staff, but it's hard to get into for NBA players. And there's let's roughly 450 NBA players. And there was just a draft recently, right? And guess what? 60 new players have come into the NBA, okay, in the first round and second round. And there, there's no room for them unless – 60 new players, 60 old players leave. So I always coach these young guys and I talk to them and I let them know that, you know, the the NBA is a great league to be in, but it's extremely difficult to stay in. And you have to outwork people. You have to learn. You have to listen. You have to come. You have to be coachable. You have to be ready to work on your skill and your craft every day. And you're trying not to be, if you're one of those fringe players, a Fred Van Vliet, for instance, you're trying not to be one of those 60 guys that gets pushed out, you know, every time there's a draft um, and 60 new players are in. Uh, and, and, you know, to Fred, Freddie's, uh, to his credit, you know, he, he, he was undrafted. He hung on. He made uh, a, a, a great career for himself. And now he's going to be a free agent. going to get paid a lot of money um, on the free agent market now. Rex, I'd love to hear about your time coaching in OKC against LeBron James and the Miami Heat during the 2012 Finals. Um, well, it it was, again, it was like another highlight of my career, obviously, making it to the NBA Finals. But, um, it, you know, when you're in the moment like that, like we were, we had just beat San Antonio. They had, in the Western Conference Finals, they had Tim Duncan, Manu, uh, Kawhi Leonard, uh, Tony Parker. They had a good team. They went up on us 2-0. Um, and then we came back and won four in a row and, uh, we made it to the NBA finals. And then all of a sudden we're in the NBA finals and we're the night before the East had not been established yet as to who our opponent would be. So we watched game seven of the Boston Celtics, right? Um, with that, that good team that Doc Rivers was coaching against the Miami Heat. And honestly, I I wasn't cheering for anybody. I was kind of locked into both teams and ready to play either team. But once Miami won and we knew we were going to play them, that next two weeks was like a blur to me. Like it, it obviously 
it went so fast. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we only played five, five games. They beat us four to one. We won the first game and we were feeling pretty good about things. We had home court advantage, but, uh, in 2013, whenever that, that finals was, it was a little different where you played two at home, three on the road, and then two at home again. And we split the two home games to start. And when we went to Miami to play those three games, it was so stretched out that we were in Miami, I think a total of like, uh, I think it was like 11 or 12 days. And and it was just too long for our team to be on the road um, and to be playing. We were a young team to be playing those types of games uh, with that type of pressure in NBA finals and being on the road that long. And unfortunately, we weren't, um, we weren't ready at the time to win an NBA championship. Awesome. And I fully agree. I know coming into the decade, that team was very, very special and so exciting to watch. I know we're all really big basketball fans and all three of those players have had a huge influence on our fandom and how we've grown as basketball fans. Well, there's three MVPs on that team. Exactly. That was a good team. Great. Hey, people ask me all the time. They said, do you ever think about like the NBA? I said, wait a minute. Do I ever think about it? I don't think <laughs> a day goes by that I don't think about it. Honestly, I mean. Uh, like Wake up in the morning. The day. I wonder. Well, at some point during the day, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I kid you not, like it'll, it'll pass through my mind. Kevin Russell, James, NBA Finals, you know, something will happen that kind of triggers something. And uh, I think about it. You know, I think about it. And I mean, here I am, you know. Uh, whatever it is, eight, you know, eight years later. And, and there's still things that I, I, I wish, you know, I, I just wish I could have you know, done this or done that differently or suggested this, um, you know, but listen, like these are great experiences in life. And, and like I tell my kids all the time, I say, you know, you, you, you not only learn through all your success and successes, but you learn through your failures and uh, you need failure in order to be able to succeed. And um, I, I have, no doubt in my mind that, uh, you know, an NBA championship for me, uh, for the organization that I'm with, is coming. It's just going to take a little bit longer than I had hoped. Absolutely. And as the lone Armenian in the NBA, do you ever feel any pressure or responsibility to represent the Armenian community because there are so few Armenians working in professional sports? Um, yes, I, I, I would say this, that like, Pressure is a privilege, first of all. So when you say someone has pressure, it's really signaling that they have a privilege of being able to do something. And for me, being Armenian and being in the NBA and representing um, the Armenian culture and the Armenian people of being in this league, um, there is a certain amount of pressure, but it's something that I I welcome. And um, I have a responsibility also. And I know... There's so many young, uh, young kids that play Armenian kids that play basketball and it's, it's big in the Armenian culture. Basketball is, you know, especially in California. Um, and I try to make myself available with whatever I can to the Armenian community. If I'm asked to do something, I always try to do it. Um, I, I rarely, if ever, if, if it's just maybe a scheduling thing that I can't do something. Otherwise, I try to make myself available because that's the responsibility that, that I have, I think, to, um, to, uh, you know, to Armenians in general. So um, I, I don't really see it as pressure. I, I really don't. It's, it's a, truly a privilege. 
So with that, Rex, you know, I'm going to ask you a very important question. I'm sure all our listeners are wondering. Is there an Armenian player right now that you've seen that or have seen that could make the NBA? Hmm. Um, well, I, I want to get more involved with the national team so I can see the best Armenian players. I've, I've only seen a few on some YouTube things, uh, highlights and that kind of thing. Uh, I will say that what many years ago when I went to Yerevan and uh, I participated in the uh, Armenian Olympics there many years ago, and I saw all the different types of Armenian um, uh, athletes from all over the world, I thought to myself, like, it's just a matter of time before one of these kids that's like 6'6", lanky, long, um, athletic, gets to the NBA. And, and unfortunately, that was almost 20 years ago and it still hasn't happened. Um, you know, so much has to happen right to get to the NBA for a particular player, uh, and having a particular skill set or being in a particular environment that enables you to get to the NBA is so important. And that's what I want to try to do for Armenians in general. And I want to apply my skill, my knowledge, my experience to the Armenian national team so that we could possibly get an Armenian that could qualify for the NBA. Um, and I just, to answer your question, I just, I don't have enough knowledge right now of all the Armenian basketball players that are out there. I've spoken to a few, I've seen a few, um, and I think a, a couple are on the fringe, um, and maybe even in the G League right now are able, able to make it to the G League. Yeah, and I'm sure there are a lot of Armenians, especially in Los Angeles, that are aspiring to that. So, you know, in a scenario of them going to a national team and having an NBA uh, assistant co head coach, you know, helping them out, I think would just reinvent what basketball is in Armenia. Because in Armenia, it's a big sport, but, you know, soccer is still number one over there. Right. Right. No question. In, in Armenia. And, and that could change. It probably needs to at least the basketball portion of it needs to grow a little bit. I know they have an Armenian league there now. Um, and, and things are kind of on the rise. They have a few people that have really taken over with the Armenian national team and they're trying to start, uh, kind of a movement for, for that team. And I really feel like if that team could win something or qualify for an Olympics down the road, um, that's just like, it's, it's a huge, huge win for Armenia if they could even qualify. Get out of the small country yeah. uh, tournaments and get into the big country uh, FIBA tournament. Was there any pushback from your family about choosing to pursue this career path? Because to some Armenian parents, that could be considered a gamble. Um, yeah, the support. I've always had support from my family. You know, I was I was in college studying business and and management, um, and this opportunity just kind of arose. I mean. My family, my mother, my brother, they, they knew how passionate I was about basketball. Um, and they, you know, everybody always supported me in so many ways to, you know, to just kind of chase my dreams and, and um, do what, you know, what I felt was right for me in my career. Um, and honestly, like the first job I ever had was, uh, you know, full-time job was the Clipper job uh, where they hired me and, whatever it was, the early 90s. So um, I can honestly say I've never really had a real job. You know, I've kind of always been in basketball. I've done a, 
a lot of odds and ends when I was in college and ways to make money. And I kind of just grinded and, and scrapped and made some money. But uh, being in the NBA, it doesn't feel like I've ever had to really work. And uh, that's, I guess, the, um, the definition or the true definition of having a job is doing something you love to do. So Rex, are there any Armenian coaches that you're in contact with or interact with in other major sports leagues? That are Armenian? That are Armenian, yeah. Um, yes, well, I, I know a few guys that have Armenian ties. Um, a good friend of mine, Ed Pickney, uh, who was a really good college player at Villanova, played in the NBA. Um, he married an Armenian woman, and they have um, Armenian children, and, and we talk uh, quite a bit about basketball and, and about Armenia and what's going on and all the stuff now. So um, th there are uh, a few people. And then, you know, the Armenian culture is, is known um, in certain segments of the NBA. So uh, there will be people that come up to me from time to time and say, uh, you know, Rex, Inchbeses, you know, they'll start oh, talking wow. Armenian to me. Yes. So it, it happens from time to time. Uh, and then there are other people that have no idea at all, you know, who Armenian people are where Armenia is located. So those are always fun discussions too, because I could kind of, um, I could kind of educate people sometimes on, you know, what it is to be Armenian, where, you know, where we're from, what our culture represents and what we've been through. So, um, that's, that's always fun as well. But, uh, yeah, I think there's, we have an Armenian agent also that represents some players in the NBA. Uh, there's, there's a gentleman that's our Armenian agent. So, um, can you tell we're, me his we're name? getting closer. Can you tell me his name? I so I can. Send my resume. I, I, I have to look it up, but I could, I could definitely tell it to you. I'll I'm sure it, it you. does vary on the cities you've coached in. Of course, you've coached in some very diverse cities and also some more rural cities like Oklahoma City and in Minnesota. So, what was your experience like with the Armenians in those communities? You know what? It's always been tremendous. Um, the there, you know, there's obviously like in Minnesota, uh, I, I only had the opportunity to meet just a few Armenian people, just, just a couple, um, in my, in my travels within the city. But, um, going to Toronto, uh, was really quite an experience. How there's so many people that reached out to me, um, all organizations, right? The Momentman organization, HBU, um, and I spoke to many different, uh, kids basketball teams there. I, I attended some different functions that they had. Uh, there were some families that reached out to me that really wanted to um, be a second family to me in Toronto. And it, it was it was really quite welcoming. And you could really see anytime I go to a new city, there are always people that reach out from the Armenian community and say, hey, welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you here. You know, it's it, and I try to, I tell my kids all the time because, you know, they're still young and they may not understand, but I, I tell them that the Ar Armenian people are less like a, uh, a national, it's more like a family than anything. If you're Armenian and you meet another Armenian person, it feels like they're family to you. And for me, especially, like you said, from, you know, from Denver to Minnesota to Sacramento to Oklahoma, Toronto, back to LA, and now back to Sacramento again. I've been I've been displaced, but anytime I, you know, 
another Armenian person in any of those cities, it feels like they're family. So, and, and they feel like that to me and I feel like that to them. And I think that's a pretty cool, um, pretty cool way to define it. During your time coaching with the Clippers, they hosted an Armenian Heritage Night. What was the process of getting that, you know, um, of that going through? Or if you had any involvement in that? You, you know what? I really did not have involvement. I was told about it more than I had any involvement in planning it. Um, and uh, they had told me that this is the date. This is what's going to happen. This is what we're doing. And I thought it was pretty cool. And um you know, unfortunately, like it was early in the year and we were scrambling a little bit and I, it was a big game and I had a lot to do and I, I never was able to go speak to a, a group that night, um, unfortunately, but uh, I think it was pretty cool and it, it was a really good awareness of why, at night and um, uh, a lot of Armenian people made the game, which was, which was good. It's hard on game nights for me to like extend myself so. out too far just because there's so much going on and, and so much responsibility that. I, I, different time things I have to be uh, different places so no no doubt it's still, it was still helpful like in general I mean it was really cool because I was at that game and obviously you guys won which is even better um, but it was insane to see so especially Armenians in LA they're mostly Laker fans but the second they right. heard that there was a this Clippers is the thing, case I, I can vouch for this you know so the second <laughs> they heard there's an Armenian night they didn't care who it was and I saw so many Armenians there and it was just amazing to see I think that was a big moment for us very cool I like that hopefully they'll do it again when when the NBA allows fans back in yeah. <laughs> we could all go back into the arenas they'll do it again hopefully you mentioned earlier that you have the desire to coach in Armenia for the national team can you expand on that for us yeah, um, well, they reached out to me. The Armenian uh, Federation reached out to me a few years back and asked me if I would have any interest in it. And um, I began conversations with them. And we've made a couple of arrangements to try to get to uh, get myself to Armenia in, in off-season the last couple of years, and it just hasn't worked out. This particular summer, I, I was like, I, I had it all blocked off. I was going, um, I was going to coach the team and be involved um and i think we were going to uh, i believe it was ireland for a small country tournament that we were going to have there and i was really excited about it and obviously the nba season got canceled and everything the schedule got torn up so i wasn't able to go but the next opportunity i have to go and um put my feet in yadavan and help out in any way shape or form i'm going to do it um and i know they have different they have the national team the other 20 they have the the girls team the women's team so i think it's really cool for them to begin this because you know so many countries have national teams um and basketball teams and and they're already growing they're you know some of them are 20 30 years into uh their program and i think we're behind and we need to catch up and we need to get this generated right not just um in the states but obviously in armenia as well and there's a lot that goes into it a lot a lot more money unfortunately needs to be pumped into the program so they could get get kind of get off the ground a little bit more so um i've talked to some of the players that have played on the national team and um they they like it but it probably needs a little more money in order to do it the correct way so there's usa basketball which has unlimited funds and they're at the top obviously and we're, we're, I don't know if we're at the bottom, but we're somewhere below right now. And 
it would be nice to get a lot of people involved in it and try to build that program up. Absolutely. How would you describe the current state of basketball in Armenia? Uh, just um, from what you are aware of. I know Haru has yeah. actually been there recently and can kind of talk to what he's seen. What I see mostly is a bunch of basketball courts throughout Armenia and and most of them not necessarily used. That's my thing about it. Yeah. I would probably use the word, unfortunately, disorganized right now. Um, there, There's a possibility that it could get organized for sure. I think there's some really good people involved in it that want to do good things. Um, it needs to be a little more organized. And I, I believe that, you know, they need a plan. And once they get a plan and everybody is on the same page with the plan, uh, it can become organized and all those courts can be used. I think that um, there are some organizations that are doing some good things, trying to refurbish some gyms throughout um, Yerevan for the, for the kids um, and the schools. So if it could get a little more organization and obviously more money into the system, then I think there's, uh, you know, sky's the limit for what, what could happen there because obviously they're still on the ground level and trying to build. Wild development in Armenia is still underway on that. I wanted to hear about how it was playing basketball as a kid growing up around East LA. Well, <clears throat> I always had a basketball in my hand mm. and I rarely would pass a school or a schoolyard. If it had a basket, I would stop and shoot. And that was kind of the, that's kind of like how I grew up. I, I, you know, I went to school with a basketball, uh, public school. I came home with a basketball after school. We would play on the, on the outdoor playgrounds that they had with the chain net. Um, and then when it got to be like four or five o'clock, I would start my way home, walking home and any basket I saw, I would shoot at. Even if it was another school, I would walk by. Um, and there were a few on the way home that I, I remember, I would just go in and shoot. So I used to like the rims that were eight feet. That was my, my thing. Cause I'd be able to try to go up there and try to dunk it. Right. So, um, I would just try to shoot all the time, anywhere I can could. And, and then, uh, I moved next to a, a, a gym at a park and they opened up three thirty every day. And that's kind of when it really started, uh, rolling for me because after school I would shoot for maybe a half hour and then I would sprint down to the gym and then I would be inside and, and I would start shooting on like what I felt was like a real, you know, a real basket and real courts. And I started playing inside and it was just like a whole different thing for me. And I would stay there for as long as I could until I had to go until I had to go home. And I did that every day for, you know, years, you know, years, Saturday mornings, uh, you know, the gym opened up at 10 AM. I'll never forget it. I'd be waiting there. And doors would open. I'd be the first one in, run inside, shoot, and stay there, I don't know, till 1 or 2 o'clock every day, come home, eat, then go back again. It's kind of like routine. So, Rex, I mean, we're fully aware of your 88-89 um, season at ELAC where you led in three-point percentage and were named team captain. I mean, when you were, when you were playing, and you said right now, you were shooting, shooting, shooting. In the current NBA, do you think you would have been... Uh, be able to make it to the NBA? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, listen, the NBA is for is for uh, a special it's for a special class of of people that have size, speed, quickness, 
strength and skill. And uh, you, you really need a combination of all those things. And if you don't, you, know, you better be really, really, really good in like your skill level or something that makes you stand out. But um, I, I, I really didn't have any of those. I, all I had was desire, right, and, and a want to get better, you know. Um, so, again, I think that when you look at NBA players, you know, and you see the best of the best, and then you see some guys that are not very good, you say, that guy's not very good. But you know what? If he would go down to the open gym that uh, everybody plays at, at uh, USA Academy in Glendale, if you were to go down there and play um, – you, you look at the guy and you say, wow, that guy's good. Where does he play? Oh, he's an NBA player. My goodness, he's really, really – he's so much better than everybody. But when he blends into the NBA and he's a 15th player, may may not look so good, right? Um, and there's different levels in the NBA. There's different tiers. There's your superstars. There's your, your starters. There's your role players. There's your bench players. And then there's the fringe guys. And, um, you know, they're all good in their own right. Just some are better than others, obviously. So, Rex, I'm sure you work with players 1 through 15. But what have been some of your roles in the NBA throughout your tenure? Um, well, my roles have kind of changed in the NBA throughout the years. Uh, I, I've, I've gone from, like, being more player development when uh, – I don't know, early in, early in my career when I would work very, very closely with players to more being specific as to what I do now, I run the defense. Um, and that takes my time away a little bit from individual work with players to more collective work with the entire team, coming up with game plans, implementing game plans, um, breaking down what we're doing as a team defensively, going into a game and what we just did coming out of that game, what we did negatively, positively, uh, showing the team, showing them personally uh, on film. So I'm a little more specific and with what I do now, and I do it with the, with the entire team. Uh, when I used to be more player development, I would be, there would be a lot more hours on the court with individual players working on skill. Um, so I, I kind of, you know, I like where I'm at right now. Being a defensive coordinator in the NBA is not an easy job. It's uh, very time-consuming. It, it could be very stressful at times. Uh, it's very uncertain. Um, so I, I, there's a ton of obstacles and challenges uh, with being a defensive coordinator. But I, I really enjoy it, you know, and, and I enjoy working with all types of players. The superstar players are great to work with because, uh, when you work out a guy like Kevin Durant or Russell, Russell Westbrook, like I did for so many years, James Harden, your workouts are so good. They're so, um, they're so fluid. Uh, you could really see the, the, the class of basketball player that those guys are. And then when you work out maybe a, a role player or a fringe player, there's a lot more coaching, a lot more teaching, a, a lot more, I guess, um, a lot more things that you have to point out to some of those players. A lot more growth that they that they have to you know they have to have. Um, but there's two things that every NBA player has to have, and it's a great work ethic and resilience. And um, if if you could bring that as an NBA player, you could continue to grow and develop even when you are a star. Kevin Durant still doing it today, still developing today, 
even though he's really, really good and he's at the highest level of his profession, he's still getting better at what he what he knows are his weaknesses. I want to stick on the defensive rule. How do you feel the game has changed with the regular use of the three-point shot that has been implemented in recent years? Well, you know what? There's, there's certain teams that you play. Houston, Golden State, Toronto, right? Uh, Mil, uh, Milwaukee. Some of these teams are going to take a ton of threes. And you know going into the game already that this is going to be a big, uh, quote, unquote, guard the three-point line night. And you have to articulate that to your team in a very short amount of time. So you played Minnesota on Monday. Tuesday was a day off. Wednesday you're playing Houston. And you're like, guys, I can't impress upon you enough as to how much we really have to guard the three-point line. And it seems like more and more that's what's happening in the NBA. It's more like, you know, two, three times a week we're saying that about almost so many different teams that you're playing. Like, if you can't guard the three-point line, because the game has certainly changed um, to a, to a three-point shooting type of, of, of offensive game, then it's going to be hard. So most of my defensive game plans are tailored to stopping the three, at least challenging the three. And there are certain threes that we do not want to give up. Um, corner threes are threes that we're not giving up. It's just such, it's shot at such a high percentage. And then the catch and shoot three is another one that we're trying to take away. Um, in the year 2000, 20 years ago, teams attempted three point field goals at a rate of 17%. Um, it's, it's now increased to 38% of team shots are three point field goals 20 years later, right? So, you could just see, like, it, it, it's almost, you know, it, it's almost like flip-flop from where teams used to shoot a ton of twos. They used to shoot almost 40% of their shots were twos. Now that number has dropped dramatically. It's all threes going up. And you better have a defensive scheme and uh, a, a, defensive, uh, a defense that's tailored to taking away or at least challenging catch-and-shoot threes. And what role does analytics play in all of this, especially in defensive scheming? And, you know, when you're approaching a team, are you focusing on their way of playing or on specific superstar players who you know will have a bigger impact in the game? Analytics is, plays a huge role. Um, it helps me quite a bit. We have an analytics department uh, of four guys that really break down your upcoming opponents. And then they also break down your own team. Um, and every time that I'm going in to uh, play a new team and I'm starting to come up with a, a game plan on like how we're going to play that team, I, I reach out to the analytics department. They send me a, a, big, uh, a big report as to what that team does specifically and who does what well, where they shoot from. And, um, you know, all that has to be read. It has to be understood. And then I have to be able to take that to the team and let them know, you know, what's, what, what's coming at them. But if you look at a guy like, um, let's take like James Harden, for example, off the dribble, uh, three, step back three, he's, he's probably shooting somewhere about 38% on those shots, um, which is a high percentage. You may take the next guy and say, okay, step back threes, 
um, by DeMar DeRozan. You know, he's only at whatever percentage, right? Uh, he's he's uh, 24%, let's say, right? His threes would be more catch and shoot rather than step back. So these types of things you have to know and you have to be able to understand that different guys have different things that, that are their strengths. And um, your players should know that going into a game. The problem is you have so many games, uh, almost four a week, that uh, it's hard to really get all that information out and um, really digested to, to your team in a short amount of time. But if you're watching the league and you're a student of the game and, and you pay attention to what's going on, you know what other players like to do and where their shots like to come from. Absolutely. Shifting gears a little bit, Enes Cantor has been extremely critical towards the Turkish government, and specifically Erdogan, while coaching him in OKC. Did he ever share with you some of his frustrations towards what he's had to endure? Um, well, I coached him in Oklahoma City, and uh, we had some good conversations. That was years ago now, six, seven years ago. Um, and then recently in the bubble, uh, we were staying at the same hotel in uh, for... 75 days and, right. and I bumped into him a lot. Uh, and we, we did talk, um, about some of the challenges that he's had to endure. Um, and some of the things that are bothering him about his government. Um, we spoke a little bit about, uh, and this is before, you know, this is really before the, 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 the conflict and the war began yeah. with Azerbaijan, um, and Armenia. And, um, but we spoke about all the things that Armenia has had to deal with as well. Um, and they're quick conversations and a lot of them were in passing as we were walking somewhere. Um, but I, I, I compliment, uh, his passion for what he believes in. Um, and he's certainly sacrificed a lot to speak out, uh, against some, some things that he doesn't feel are, are, you know, great for, for you know, for his country and the, and and his family that are still living in Turkey. Absolutely. Have you had any other conversations with uh, players or coaches that go beyond saying just uh, phrases or talking about food or something like a serious conversation about Armenianness or anything like that? Well, um, I'll say this: like the NBA is very diverse, right? Absolutely. And there are so many different nationalities in the NBA. So many guys from Europe, uh, Africa, different countries. And I think that everybody has had different things to endure. Um, and I, I've, I've listened um, for hours to uh, like Serge Ibaka, uh, who comes from the Congo, um, Brazzaville, I believe. And, he's told me many things that have happened in his country. And, and, you know, there's so many different countries that have had, uh, atrocities happen to them. And Armenia is not the only one, you know, but anytime I could share what has happened with to Armenia with other people, I try to, and anytime I could talk to other players from other countries about what has happened in their country, what's still going on in their country. It's really interesting because, um, there's so many things going on around the world that you really don't know about. And, and many people 
don't even know about what's going on in Armenia right now. Um, so you try to teach people and then you also have to listen to others because there are so many different stories out there and, and some of them are just really unbelievable when, when you think about them similar to what Armenia is going through now. Were there any Armenian coaches that personally influenced you? That's a good question. You know, Jerry Tartanian is a hall of fame coach and he was, you know, he was you know, the, the face of uh, Armenia and basketball and coaching, you know, all tied into one uh, for so many years. You know, I grew up uh, watching him coach so many great UNLV teams and then the Fresno State teams and uh, him chewing on the towel. It, it was kind of an iconic thing, you know, and uh, I always think that he will forever be, you know, the, to me anyway, the, the picture of Armenian basketball, um, you know, because there, there weren't, there, there wasn't a whole lot of basketball being played or talked about, I would think, in in the country of Armenia at the time, and there weren't a lot of Armenian people playing basketball. Um, and I, I think he brought it out to the forefront a little bit. Um, and and you know, even though you know he's passed away now, he's he's still a major figure and a, a major icon to Armenians in my in my estimation. Absolutely, and. After all of these years coaching in the NBA, what still continues to motivate you? What do you still want to achieve before you can even consider retirement? Well, I, I, I'm way too young, I think, to consider retirement. <laughs> Fair but enough. I, I still, I'm, I'm driven to win a championship. I'm driven to uh, be on successful teams. There's nothing more energizing than being on a team that like goes on the road and wins a big playoff series or a big game that, you know, you just kind of bond together and you build trust in each other. Um, your relationships of team and teammates, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to really describe, but being with each other for as many hours, uh, days, months as we are in the NBA uh, you, you build relationships and you pull for one another and, and then to see how your hard work pays off, your day-to-day grind pays off in throughout the season into the playoffs and winning big games and coming through with clutch shots. It, it's really like, it's a, it's a, it's an ener- energizing feeling. It, it's a high that you can't get anywhere else in my opinion. And that's what really motivates me is to, like be part of something that's successful and then to help like younger players and, and to build. Um, Cause there's so many guys and the NBA draft, draft just happened. And uh, you know, there's so many of those kids coming into the NBA. They're 19, 20, 21 that have no idea what is in store for them the next uh, year, but let alone the next, you know, 15 years of their career. And if I could help them, and educate them and kind of get them ready for what's going to take place for them. That's like, that's a success for me as well. Absolutely. And lastly, I just want to ask you about this new opportunity in Sacramento, returning to the Kings organization, who I'm sure the goal is to try and help them reach their first playoff appearance since 2006, the NBA's current longest playoff drought. What is it like coaching 
for, you know, Luke Walton, who, funny enough, was actually not even in high school when you first began coaching in the NBA. What is that dynamic like? Um, you know what? Uh, we've I've had the past couple of weeks to be able to be around Luke Walton and listen to him uh, and tell him some of my experiences, some kind of way I see the I see the game being played defensively at least, and listen to some of his thoughts. And um, I've come away very very impressed. Um, He's a very sharp coach. Uh, he's been through a lot as a player. He's a championship player and coach. Uh, and he obviously comes from a basketball family with his dad being one of the, you know, one of the greatest centers to ever play the game uh, at UCLA, Bill Walton, and then, you know, into the NBA and he's a Hall of Fame uh, basketball player, Bill Walton was. So uh, I really respect Luke's. Uh, ability to you know, understand the game and to coach and to lead. Um, and for me, it's been great so far. Uh, Alvin Gentry, who's one of the other assistant coaches, I worked for him as uh, an assistant when he was the head coach of the Clippers. So we have a great relationship as well. And I'm really fortunate, honestly, to be in a situation like this. And, you know, anytime there's a, a job change or there's a somebody gets fired, as Doc Rivers did, and they changed the entire staff as the Clippers did with us. Um, it's unfortunate. And there's kind of a scramble to see where am I going to go to next? What's because next? You can't you know? do, what's next? Where do I end up? You can't just transfer. You know, it's not like right. you're transferring. If you get fired at a bank, uh, you know, at Bank of America, you say, okay, well, I'll come over here to Chase and I'll work at Chase or I'll work down the road here at uh, whatever. So, it's just not that easy. You know, um, there's only 30 franchises and, um, they're all in different parts of the country and, and you got it. You know, you have to, you have to have good work. You have to have a great reputation in order to be, uh, be known to be able to get another job. And, you know, it's, it's difficult. And I'm, I'm just really honored to be able to be hired by the Kings, by, by coach Walton and to be able to coach this young group of Sacramento Kings. I'm, Looking forward to it, and anytime I get a new job in the NBA, I'm 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 honored and I'm humbled because I know how hard these jobs are to get. Um, and I have you know I have one of you know ninety jobs in in the world that uh, that I'm, I'm I'm fortunate to be able to be on the bench in in the NBA. So I never I try to never lose uh, sight of that personally. That's that's a fantastic answer, and we really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. As we talked about earlier, it's such a crazy time right now. NBA season will be beginning soon. We're just so for our audience, we recorded this, you know, two days after the draft on November twentieth. So it's an exciting season. We'll be rooting for you, Coach. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it, Armin Bird. Arm, thank you for your time and um, great questions and. I appreciate it. Anytime you guys need me on or you need anything, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Have a great one. This has been an episode of High Tube Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. A couple of bombing engines talking in the world.